Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Revelation chapter 2, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. My message today is entitled, No Room for Compromise. Father, we do thank you today. We, as we open your word, we just say that your word is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. Your word shows us where we are, where we're going. We need your word. We thank you for it. Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you open our eyes today to see what you want us to see? Give us the grace to walk out and live out your word as we hear it today and receive it from you. Holy Spirit, we pray you convict us and encourage us, strengthen us, help us to live more and more like Jesus. We pray simply this, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth, in our world, in our nation, and in our state, and in our region as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that this is your world And you're the king of all kings. Your throne is above every throne. We acknowledge you. We honor you today. And we look to you now. We also, Lord, thank you for Northwest Church, Edgewood, and our Hispanic congregation that meets tonight. We pray you would bless them as they meet and as they gather. Strengthen us. Unify us. Help us to continue to focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' mighty name, everyone said, Amen. amen and amen. We have been in a series Uh, called A Light in the Darkness that's based on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and we're in message number five today. We've already studied chapter one where we see the apostle John, one of the closest disciples to the Lord Jesus while he lived on the earth, received a vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ, and through that vision, it was revealed to him this message that he was to convey to seven churches that he knew personally and pastorally. And so here John receives this message not only for the churches, but also Revelation chapter 4 through 22 is, I believe, as a futurist in my understanding of eschatology, is actually uh, meant for the last generation. John was shown what was taking place in his generation, seven messages for seven churches in that time. That's what we're studying. And then Revelation 4 through 22, he was shown what would take place in the last generation. In case you're wanting an overview of my understanding of eschatology, there you have it. (laughs) Revelation 4, Jesus says, come up here. And there was a door open in heaven, and he went through it, and he was able to see what was going to happen in a future generation. That is the lay of the land for for the book of Revelation, but we've been studying the seven messages to the seven churches, extrapolating principles, understanding what God would have us to know from what Jesus said to his churches then, knowing that much of that still applies to us today. We looked at the church in Ephesus, we looked at the church in Smyrna, and now today we're going to look at the message of Jesus to the church in Pergamum, and here's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Only five verses does not mean my message is going to be any shorter than it normally is. You're welcome. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, to the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice the idols, and to commit acts of immorality or sexual immorality specifically. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. A little context for the city of Pergamum and the church that is in the city. Pergamum was the third city on the postal route, about 50 miles northeast of Smyrna. It should be a picture on the screen. 
We've already studied the church in Ephesus, and then Smyrna. Smyrna is about 35 miles away, and here we have 50 miles northeast from Smyrna is Pergamum. It was not nearly as large as Ephesus or Smyrna, but it was just as significant. In some ways, the church uh, had experienced great persecution, just like in all the other cities, because this city, while it wasn't as big, it was just as important. It was the capital, the legal center of the Roman province. It was originally built to mirror the city of Athens, but it surpassed the glory of Athens in so many ways, such as education, philosophy, architecture, artistry, sculpture, and so on. Lots of ruins that are still there today, lots to be studied, lots to be seen. In fact, you could just go on Google and just type in Pergamum, ruins. There's so much that you could read about and see there. I have commentaries on the city of Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, just these five verses. I've got one commentary, it's about seven, 800 pages, just the one. So obviously there's a lot to be said. This city was stunning, naturally speaking, but it was spiritually it was satanic. You'll notice that in one verse, Jesus talks about Satan's throne, and he says, this is where Satan dwells. Clearly, this is a point of spiritual warfare, which we'll discuss today. Now, we've been following a grid of how Jesus is speaking to the churches, and we have a commendation from Jesus, we have a complaint, we have a correction, and we have a promise, and we're going to follow that same grid as we walk through the message to the church in Pergamum. First, we'll look at the commendation of Jesus, and this is what he says in verse 13 again. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Jesus is saying, I know that you live in a dark place at a dark time. I know that about you. It's a very comforting word from Jesus. I understand where you live, and I understand what is going on. I'm intimately acquainted with this. He's not saying, I just heard about it, or it's hearsay. I understand it. I've seen it. I'm well acquainted with what is happening and what is going on in your city. This would have been comforting for them to hear that, lest they think they're alone. They're not alone. But here he's saying Satan has his throne, and this this can mean two different things. We don't exactly know, but when you think of a throne, you think of a seat of authority. And we know that from Scripture. Psalm 47 verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne, right? The throne above every other throne. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't Satan seated on it. It was God that was seated on the great white throne because he is the king of all kings. His kingdom reigns over every other kingdom. His throne has all authority. A throne represented authority. He's saying Satan has his throne in Pergamum. In other words, there is a level of authority, of satanic authority, in this city. Now, probably this relates to two things, politics and religion. I should say their politics, but probably both. Why would I say that? Because Pergamum was the capital city, the legal, legal center for the Roman Empire. If you were to think about it this way, Ephesus is New York City, Smyrna is Chicago, and Pergamum is Washington, D.C. History also tells us that the imperial cult was there, and this is the cult that worshipped the emperor. In fact, years before this, they had erected a statue of Augustus. They worshipped the, the statue, they worship the emperor, now it was Domitian, they literally worship the emperor. And this was something that was very typical, and so worship and politics were tied together. In fact, religion and politics were tied together. Christians defected from the normal way of life in Pergamum. This is what brought on persecution. They were not like everyone else. They did not worship like everyone else. They did not believe like everyone else. They did not act like everyone else. So this is part of what brought on the persecution. And as things became more severe and more serious, so their persecution continued to grow. And so we see that, and we will see that here in just a moment, actually. Like other cities we've talked about, this was very much a pagan city, shrines and temples and statues they worshipped. In fact, one of the greatest um, It's not a temple, it's an altar, but one of the greatest sites of worship would be the altar of of Zeus. Some believe this is actually what's referenced to Satan's throne. 
Um, there are ruins. In fact, the ruins were picked up and moved to another place. Just a little history for you. But this is a replica of Zeus's altar. In fact, when he talks about Antipas, the faithful witness, he was murdered. He was martyred on Zeus's altar. This was a massive structure. And I just want to remind you that this is the world that they lived in. If you can envision this, if you can imagine this, where Satan's throne dwells. Sometimes we talk about how bad it is today, and there are places in the world where you will see temples from other false gods and other forms of religion. You will see those temples. You will see statues that are worshipped and all of that. But I've never walked by something like this and anywhere on this, this uh, country before, and so this is quite a bit different. This is just a city of a few hundred thousand people, and they have innumerable statues, innumerable places of worship. And here we have potentially Satan's throne, the, the picture of the altar of Zeus, who was the Olympian god of sky and thunder, the father of all gods. Regardless of what the throne is meaning in this text, whether or not I can properly interpret that for you, What we do know is whatever this means, Satan had authority in this city to some degree, and he was exercising that authority through the systems and the structures that they could see in the natural. And that is a principle that we've got to understand, that the systems and the structures that are erected, that are built by unregenerate, ungodly, non-Christian people are energized and animated by demon spirits. There's a demon spirit behind this. As natural of a structure, it looks, this is not just concrete and and wood and cement. There is something attached to this structure that made them build it, that causes people to worship at it. This is, in fact, satanic. Lest we think it's just a blend of other religions, there are other gods that are worshipped that is not the one and true God. There are demon spirits that are behind that. The natural is a manifestation of, most often of what is true in the spirit. If we could just pull back the curtain and see what is really happening and what is really going on in the structures of man, in the religions of man, we would see demons, principalities, and powers. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 actually tells us this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, the plans of the devil, the architect, (laughs) the architecture of the devil. The devil has plans and schemes. The way he goes about to deceive people, it comes through the natural and he's not always discerned. What he's trying to do may be clear to us who understand the scripture and know the Lord and have the Holy Spirit, but we've got to be careful to discern what God is doing, and also what the enemy is doing. So they're living in a time of spiritual warfare that was very clearly overt. Sometimes our spiritual, our spiritual warfare is a covert mission of the enemy. It's underneath. This was blatant. This was out loud. This was in front of your face. This is what they were dealing with. When Jesus gives them a commendation, he's saying, I know where you live. I know how hard it is. I know what's normal for you. I know what you go through. I know what you deal with. On a regular basis, he's not just sympathizing, he's trying to strengthen them. I see you, you're my church, I'm proud of you, I'm aware of it. The second thing he says is, I know that you have remained faithful. Verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. My faithful witness, martyr, he was murdered for his faith in Christ. And there's two sources that I've read about who Antipas is. He was, probably, he was probably a leader in the church of Pergamum during that time, probably well known. He could have been the first martyr in this region, which is why Jesus mentions him. But was, this was the custom uh, during that time was to bring this person who would not comply with their form of religion, their worship of the emperor, they would bring this person who had been indicted and accused of whatever it was before their counsel. They would give this person an opportunity to renounce their faith, renounce the Lord Jesus. Obviously, Antipas didn't do that, and because of that, they would murder him. But I want to show you how they did that. This is called a bronze bull, and this actually was on the altar of Zeus. They had one of these there. You can see the little hatch. 
So what they did with Antipas, as the historical account shows us, is when he would not comply with the governing authorities, he would not comply with the religious authorities, they opened that hatch and they put him in there and they burned a fire underneath him. Now, typically, they would do this to scare people. It's, it's horrendous. It's, it's beyond comprehension what I'm showing you today, but this is a fact. I'm not showing it to you to scare you or, or, or shock factor. This is reality right here. And they would basically roast a human being, and you'd hear the screams for half a day, ladies and gentlemen, half a day. That was what they did. But the historical, historical account, when you read about it, it, sh- it shares with us that they could hear Antipas praying for the church. While he was in there, he was praying for the church while he was in there. Jesus is saying that in the days of my faithful witness, Antipas, you remained faithful to me. You did not renounce the faith. Why would Jesus say that? He would say that because if there was ever a time for people to walk away from the faith, it would be because they saw what I just showed you. They watched it. They saw it happen. The church certainly had to go underground in many ways, but They did not renounce their faith. They did not stop naming the name of Jesus, even though they knew what might happen to them. This is amazing. This is just incredible. They stood true, and Jesus tells them that you didn't renounce my name. You didn't give up. You chose to follow me. Why would he say that? Because people were backsliding. People were becoming apostates. You know, there's a difference between a backslider and an apostate. A backslider is somebody who struggles with sin. An apostate is somebody who says, this is no longer sin, I renounce my faith in Jesus, I don't believe in him anymore, and I'm going to follow my own way or any other way, but I don't believe that Jesus is the way. That's an apostate. Sometimes in the history of the holiness movement, people have gotten this misunderstood because there's a doctrine called once saved, always saved, and sometimes Pentecostal churches don't believe in that doctrine, and so it gets a little misconstrued what we all believe. Let me tell you what's scary to me, all right? I think it's scary that sometimes we allow a teaching that suggests that you can believe in Jesus and have nothing to do with him, not look like anything like him, and somehow you're still a Christian. I don't believe that for a second. But that's today, right? It's, like, it's, it's almost like what's preached at times, even if it's indirect. It's like, come to Jesus, he'll give you everything you ever wanted. You know, he's just a genie in a bottle, just poof, he's going to show up, he's going to come through for you. That's going to happen. And uh, obviously that doesn't happen, so people get disillusioned. But this message that gets preached out there, and I've heard it, and I'm not indicting all the churches and saying we're great and others aren't. I'm just simply saying that throughout my years of being a Christian, I've heard all kinds of strange messages that were more about me and about man than they were about Jesus. Jesus and following him and surrendering my whole life to him. And it's all about what he says rather than what I want. And so it seems to me that throughout my time of being a Christian, I've watched a lot of people walk away from Jesus. And a lot of times it was because of how they came to Jesus. They thought I get forgiveness for my sin and heaven when I die. That sounds like a great deal, but I'm going to live like hell all the way until the end. Now, listen, everybody in this room struggles with sin. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because in the spirit, we're all doing the wave. (laughs) That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus because we have sin in our lives. And we're being conformed into his image as we walk with Jesus. You still have sin, but yes, he's helping you to overcome sin. Jesus can help us overcome sin. In the face of great difficulty, the church has proved it. And maybe you and I aren't facing that, but believers across the world are facing it today. And in the face of great persecution, they are not renouncing Jesus. But let me tell you, I've watched a lot of people walk away from Christ for a whole lot less than that. And Jesus is saying, I'm proud of you because if there was ever a time where people would do it, it would have been then, but you didn't. And I'm thankful, I'm proud. I'm standing right beside you, strengthening you. But yes, as a pastor, am I concerned that People think this doctrine that they can just live however they want and, and Jesus is good with it. Yeah, it concern, in fact, I'll tell you this, it scares me. It scares me that there's this idea that salvation is so cheap, not free, it is free, but it's so cheap that your life doesn't change. If an apple tree doesn't produce apples, it's not an apple tree. Now, I'm not up here telling you I got lots of apples, enough apples for everybody. Just come and pick from the tree. I've got enough apples for all of you. I'm hoping I got enough for an apple pie. 
But if there's no fruit on the tree, it's not an apple tree. It's just a bush that takes up space. And so we've got to be clear. We're living in a time where capitulation and compromise has grown so strong that it's almost like you cannot distinguish between a Christian and a non-Christian. And let's just be honest about that. Can we just have an honest moment of conversation? Don't leave. Don't get tense. Don't get confused about what I'm saying. Let's just have an honest moment of conversation that when the church looks exactly like the world, something is deeply wrong, seriously wrong. Now, this isn't my time to rail against the world. I'm talking to our church. I'm just saying that if we look like everything in the world, what has actually happened on the inside of us? Compromise is what they were dealing with. And Jesus said, I'm proud of you because you've been faithful to me. But he had a complaint, didn't he? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Remember to Ephesus, I have this one thing against you. Oh, but to them, he says, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus references two sources of teaching that have produced compromise in the church. The first is the teaching of Balaam, and the second is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Listen, I don't think there actually was a formal teaching of Balaam, like, hey, come to the teaching of Balaam class. I don't think that was a thing. But what he's talking about is he's looking into the Old Testament. Obviously, Jesus knows the Old Testament, and he's referencing the teaching of seduction of the people of God in order to compromise and live like everyone else. He's referencing that that typifies the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So it is one and the same in my view. So the teaching of Balaam in chapter 22 of the book of Numbers, we read about the king of Moab named Balak, and he hires Balaam. Balaam's a medium. He's a spiritist. He's a witch. And he hires him to curse Israel because he's afraid of their soon incoming invasion because he saw what happened to the other nations. So the king of Moab is afraid. He's saying, oh my gosh, the Israelites are going to come and with a mighty hand of their God, they're going to wipe us out like they've done to the other nations. So he hires this witch and he says, hey, curse them. He takes them up to a high place and says, hey, curse them right now. And so Balaam goes to curse them, but Yahweh, Father God, stops him and makes him bless the nation of Israel. And Balak, the king of Moab, gets so angry. What are you doing, man? I hired you to curse them. And you just blessed them. And so they go through this like three times, and Balaam blesses them. He says, I cannot curse what God has not or will not curse, nor will I. He just blessed them. But what we read 10 chapters later, somehow in some way, Balaam taught Balak how to seduce the people of Israel. And it was through idolatry and sexual immorality. And we see that the people of God, not just 10 chapters later, are already having all kinds of sexual escapades that are bringing them into a place of judgment. And that is exactly what they experience. They experience judgment. Yes, that is in your Bible. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum regarding the presence of false teaching, some of you hold to false teaching that brings about compromise in your beliefs. Some of you hold the false teaching that brings about compromise in your actions, actions and beliefs. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was that they compromised because they wanted to avoid persecution, so they allowed a blend, so to speak. In fact, today, it's kind of like um, what used to be called antinomianism. Today, it's called hypergrace. That's what we call it today. Today, there's this idea that you can sin... And because you're already forgiven by the blood of Jesus, you don't even have to ask him to forgive you, which is kind of ridiculous if you think about it. And it's actually based on misunderstanding. There are people that think, Jesus doesn't see my sin anymore, so if I sin, then I don't have to ask him to forgive me because he doesn't see it. If I said, hey, please forgive me, he says, for what? Because I've already been forgiven. Well, that kind of teaching leads somewhere. You want to know where it leads? It leads to a place where you no longer think sin is sin anymore. Because when you don't feel conviction, and you don't feel like you're wrong, and you don't come to someone who forgives you, who is perfect, all of a sudden, there is a shift, and you no longer will ask for forgiveness. But let me clear something up, because people get confused all the time. You say, Pastor Ben, if I come to Christ, doesn't the Bible say that I'm saved by grace 
Through faith, which is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. But it means that when we receive grace, we walk with the Lord in relationship because he's restored us to right relationship with our Heavenly Father. So now that we're in relationship with him and we recognize conviction and we grieve the Holy Spirit, we come to him when we grieve him and when we sin and we ask him to cleanse us and forgive us. But we're not asking to get saved again because we're already in covenant with him through Jesus. But this is a misunderstanding because people act like we're teaching that you need to get saved every time you sin. If that were the case, I'd do an altar call right now and all of you would have to come up front and it definitely would not be COVID friendly. (laughs) But there's a misunderstanding that happens in the church. When you come to Christ, you are forgiven of your sin. That's the condition that you have before God. But our sins are plural actions that still come from that nature. God is conforming us into his image. We come to him out of relationship because we know we grieve his Holy Spirit. Father, forgive me. Cleanse me from unrighteousness. I hate the fact that I did this. That's the difference between salvational forgiveness and relational forgiveness. Now, it's just like if I were to say something that I would never say to my beautiful, wonderful wife. If I were to walk in one day, had a hard day, whatever it might be, you know, because some days are hard, you know. Amen. And I were to say something to her, I won't repeat something that I would say because I wouldn't say it, and I don't even know how I would demonstrate that to you today since I've never said anything that's worthy of bringing up as an example. <laughs> but, but if I said something to my dear wife and I said something that was certainly sinful and wrong and evil and, and wrong and, and evil and sinful, and if it ever happened, far be it from me, but if it ever happened and I said something to her, just boom, in the thin air, I say something, and then she looks at me like... Women have the power of doing just in one look. Don't have to say anything, just in one look. Like, do you like your life? You know, it's that look. It's like, you enjoy breathing kind of look. And, and it's I not, I mean, that's, if that's offensive to you women, I'm sorry. I don't know how to explain how I feel sometimes. It's just, and it's not you. It's not you. It's just the sophistication of a woman. The power of communication without words. It's amazing. It's amazing. Something's happening. We need marriage counseling right now. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, Bridget. All right, but let's say I did that, and then I just acted like nothing happened, and I walked out, and I went to the store, right? I'm just going to go to the store and let her cool off, because clearly she didn't understand my heart. And I come back, and I walk in, and I say, hey, what's for dinner? I thought you were making dinner. I thought you were making dinner. It doesn't seem like there's anything here, you know? And I act like nothing happened, right? Well, that's not, that's not a good thing, and if she brings me to a place of accountability for my wrongdoing, and I ask her to forgive me, Okay, because I come to my senses. I don't have to call Pastor Steve Shell and have him renew our vows because we need to walk through the covenant again. Do <laughs> you understand? I don't need to go back to our place of covenant. I do not need, that's not what forgiveness is. I don't go, hey, let's go and get married again. Because clearly I have dishonored our covenant. No, I dishonored our relationship. So I say, forgive me. She says, I forgive you. And then we make up. And it's all good, you know. All right, amen. And we think it's stuff. But sometimes in Christianity, we act like because we're in covenant with God, we don't have to ask Him for forgiveness. It's salvation versus relationship. We don't have to get saved again. We're in covenant with Him. We just say, Father, thank you. That's not who I am. And Lord, it grieves my heart that I did this. I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness because I sinned in your eyes. And it's evil because your word says it's evil and I don't want this in my life. That's the heart of a Christian. And to not have that heart is scary. To not have the conviction of the Holy Spirit for wrongdoing is scary. And so we pray for us, our hearts, Lord, if there be any wicked way in me, forgive me, cleanse me, remove it from me. The complaint of Jesus was that you've accepted. You've accepted that this is okay. This is where you stop the struggle. Ladies and gentlemen, I need you to hear this. The compromise that he's talking about is not your struggle with sin. It's that you've given up the struggle with sin. It's that it's not sin anymore. This is not wrong anymore. This is actually okay. You've changed what sin is. Jesus is not indicting his church for having a struggle with sin because everybody does. He's saying that you have chosen a path where you're no longer going to come to me asking for forgiveness and cleansing from unrighteousness. 
You've changed the terms. You've changed my word. You're compromising. This is a disloyalty. Jesus sees this as a disloyalty. I'm not railing against anybody. I'm just simply saying these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and mercy. But when we don't come to him with what is wrong and needed to be cleansed in our life, how do we receive grace and mercy? Grace and mercy is so powerful, but it's in contrast to the sin and wickedness that put Jesus on the cross. This is the beauty of grace. The beauty of mercy is that we so deeply and desperately needed it because we were wretched, because we have darkness, because we have sin. That's why Jesus had to die. He was the only sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Only. Only him. And so he's talking about compromise in the church, and he brings it down to two things, idolatry and sexual immorality. And I would say to you in our world, what has changed? We have false teaching today that advocates a resistance to a holy life in order to fit in or continue a life of sin. Jesus sees compromise as disloyalty, similar to unfaithfulness, to a spouse in covenant. While it's not easy to discuss, you know, sexual sin in church, I, I want to for a moment. I want to, I want to talk about this because it seems to me that from the beginning of the church, really from the beginning of when Adam and Eve sinned up until now, sexual sin and sexual brokenness has always been one of our major, major problems. It's not a minor problem. It's a major problem. And I'm not here to rail against you, but I am here to talk honestly with you. That today, and really in every generation, we have struggled with sexual brokenness. And that struggle is something that we need to take up in struggling against it in the holiness of God. We have to struggle against sexual sin in the holiness of God. Why? Because God created us, God designed us, and God gave us sexuality for its context. Sex is not an evil thing. Sex is not a bad thing. Sex is a beautiful thing. It's a gift given by God for the proper context. But without its proper context, it is destructive to those who engage in it. And it is no private matter. It will manifest, and it does manifest in one way or another. At minimum, we will lose our spiritual authority when we give ourselves to sexual sin. We won't pray the same. We won't believe God the same. We won't interact with one another the same. When skeletons are in the closet, when undealt with, unrepentant sexual sin is in the closet, believe me, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I know it's very difficult to talk about this because no matter how I say it, no matter how I bring this up, Shame, guilt, condemnation is soon to follow. But here's what I would say to you. The Bible's very clear about sexuality being between one man and one woman in the context of holy marriage that God has designed for us. In that context, it is a beautiful blessing. Outside of that context, it is destructive. Every form of sexual sin, from watching pornography, self-gratification, homosexual expression, adultery, fornication, and every other deviance from the proper context of what God has created us for and what he created sex for will only hurt us and hurt everyone else around us in one way or another. And so what do we do with sexual sin? Because clearly we've been dealing with it from the beginning. Look what happens in Genesis chapter 3. God tells Adam and Eve If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you will die. In Genesis chapter 3, the enemy is talking with Eve. And the longer the enemy talks with her, the more appealing the fruit became. And that's really one of my theories, is that the longer we let lies into our mind, the more appealing the lie becomes. She allows him to continue to talk to the point where she sees the fruit, and now the fruit is appealing. And she takes and eats it and gives it to Adam and they eat. And the first thing that happens, I want to remind you, you know the first thing that happens? They look at each other and they see that they are naked. And it says they cover themselves with fig leaves. I believe that's where sexual brokenness began. And that it's plagued humanity ever since. And it still plagues us even in the church. But I believe that Jesus, through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, is the only place where we can actually have true freedom and transformation. Today... If you are struggling, those of you online, anybody watching me, listening to me, you in your heart, you know if there is any level of sexual sin in your life currently, first, I want to tell you this, God already knows. 
He already knows what you're facing. He already knows your struggle. He knows there is nothing that is private before the eyes of the Lord. Can we all say amen? amen? That might be a scary thought, but it is actually the truth. He knows everything right now in this room. And God is not here to embarrass anyone through his word and what we're talking about, but God is here to transform our lives. And if we yield and submit ourselves to his glorious plan of what he's called us for, what he's given to us for its proper context, if we submit to that, he promises to transform us. If not initially, eventually. I've walked with a number of people in every area of brokenness that you can bring up today. You could say, well, Ben, what about this? And sometimes I do. It's so funny that uh, every now and again I'll have somebody tell me as a pastor, well, like, what are you going to do if somebody who has, you know, maybe it's a transgender issue or somebody has this or somebody has that. What are you going to do if somebody comes to your church and has this struggle? And I'm like, I wish that were a theory, but you're asking somebody who is literally dealing with that right now. Man, stop it, Frank. Stop messing with me. You know, it's like, it's almost like a theoretical question, like, I would ne- like I've never dealt with this before, never helped anybody in this situation. Do you realize that we're a big church with a lot of people, and we're all broken here? You think that there aren't people among us that are struggling with your theoretical conversation here? Who do you think they call, man? It's so funny. It's like, just calm it down. Bring it down to DEFCON 1 for a second here, you know? But if you're struggling with any sense of brokenness, let me tell you, there is freedom in Jesus. I'm going to say it to you again. There is freedom in Jesus. There's freedom. But you've got to submit to the Lord. We have to come out of the shadows. We've got to come out of the closets. We've got to get rid of our skeletons if if we're not going to do that. Let me just tell you, to be honest with you, if we confess our sin, the Bible says, 1 John 1 Chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sin, that means agree with God of what is wrong. If we confess our sin, he is faithful. See, we're already admitting we've been unfaithful. He is faithful and righteous, and he will forgive us, and then it promises something else beyond forgiveness. He won't just say, hey, I know you're sorry, I forgive you. He will cleanse us from unrighteousness. I know that a lot of times people don't believe this anymore, and the teaching is going down a road where we believe that Jesus just tolerates, pats us on the back, but he doesn't transform us. I'm, I do not believe that. I don't yield to that. I believe there's transformational power in the gospel of Jesus, and he can change our desires. He can change our appetites. He can change our broken sexuality. If you struggle with watching pornography and you can't get free, first thing, if you ever sit with me and you say, you, you, people confess to me, I'm like, pastors are walking targets, you know, for confession. If you confess to me, the first and most important thing I'm going to ask you is, do you believe that Jesus can set you free? If your answer is not yes, that's the first place that we go because our faith has to be in him. Our faith has to be in him. Either he can or he cannot, but if I can't help somebody understand that our faith in him is what causes us to be set free. I'm, I'm just a person. I'm just a man. I'm just a guy sitting in an office talking to you. I, I have no power. He has power. The scary part of eschatology of the end times is it talks about there will be forms of religion that deny the power. What kind of power? Power to change our lives from the inside out. Deny that power. What are we left with when we deny power? We're left with a religion that's hollow. Forgiveness for when we sin and heaven when we die and just hold on. I've got no lack of compassion for you or anybody that's watching in their struggle. I've got no lack of compassion. But I think it's time that we just acknowledge that if the church continues down a road of capitulation and compromise where we change the rules on what sexual sin is, all it will do, as history shows us, is destroy us. All it will do is destroy us. It reduces down to animalistic tendencies and the dignity that God has created us for, the respect that he's called us to have, the dignity, the honor. We are the glory of his creation and he wants us to not be prideful, but to stand knowing that he made us in his image according to his likeness and he is committed to thoroughly transforming our lives for his own glory. He doesn't shame us We shame ourselves. There's no need to shame yourself. 
There's no need to shame yourself. If you're not walking in that freedom, that freedom is available to you through him. Not through me, not through us railing at one another. There's no reason to rail at each other. There's only one reason to call each other to the place of holiness. Christianity is changing before our eyes in the world that we live in. People are changing the goalposts. They're moving the goalposts. They're changing the terms. My fear in all of that is that we stop listening to the true Jesus of the Bible. I want to remind you before I close my sermon, which I have to in a few moments. These are his words. Jesus said this to his church. And sometimes I think we reduce, we, it's like we try to interpret how he said it. He wasn't angry, he wasn't mad. There's, there's a place of interpretation where you can, you can actually filter a message in the Bible through anger and you get the wrong interpretation. I mean, there's, when you go through the science of interpretation, hermeneutics, there's actually an, uh, there's a part of interpretation where we hear the, the voice, the tone. It's very important. The gentleness of the Lord is available to us. He is gentle. He is kind. He is patient. But he is ever truthful. He is ever serious about that which destroys us like a parent. If you're a parent in this room and you see your child go down the wrong road, even if it's one step in the wrong direction, don't tell me for a second that you're not deeply concerned because you know that one more step could be off the cliff. It does not take much. And so God, when he speaks to us, he, he certainly does in grace, but he also does in truth because he doesn't want us to take another step. One more step in the wrong direction. That level of compromise may have consequences that we could never imagine. Jesus gives them one correction, and that correction is to repent and stand against every form of compromise. To repent means to change your mind and your actions. It means to change your mind and your actions. Where is the enemy targeting us? Our mind, consequently our actions. Jesus says, I have this against you that you allow false teaching. You hold to false teaching. It's the teaching that causes actions. If I can deceive you, if I can make you believe something that's wrong, you'll follow that way. That's all I got to do is introduce it. And let me, let me just tell you, if the enemy cannot curse, he will corrupt us. If persecution doesn't work, he'll try perversion. And if the enemy cannot kill the church, he will try to join it. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we need to spend the majority of our time focused on following Jesus and becoming like him, but there's a percentage of us that needs to be devoted to discerning and standing against false teaching. And there are many forms I could bring up today that are around that I hear from, from the doctrine of inclusion where all people are saved because Jesus' cross was so powerful. No, people are saved when they give their life wholeheartedly over to Jesus Christ. That's inclusionism. That's a doctrine that is spun today, that you don't have to give your life to Jesus, that everybody, no matter what they believe, is going to be saved. People, that's, that's a slippery slope. That's, that's a very popular one today. It started with people like Rob Bell and others that have written these books. You may not have heard of them. You don't need to. I hope you don't. But I've read these books, other lies that seem subtle. And you know how compromise starts. It always starts small, doesn't it? It always starts with a little bit. I would, I would like to have the naive approach and like, everything's good, no problems. Pastor Ben, don't talk about anything intense. The problem is, is since I've been a Christian for tw almost 22 years, I've watched so many people walk away from Jesus for so much less than what we're teaching today. And that's, that scare, that fear in my life is probably the, the only fear that I feel like is appropriate other than the fear of God. It's that people will walk away from Jesus. So what we have to do is teach the truth, like... He bought us with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. We give our heart whole, wholly and completely to him. We repent from every form of compromise because we recognize that the enemy is trying to energize and animate doctrine, teaching, whether it's subtle or it's not so subtle, whether it's, whether it's direct or indirect, whether we discern it, all of it or not, whether we think it's that harmful or not, there is teaching that will corrupt the people of God. It has happened before. It will happen again. And we've got to know there's no room for compromise. Teaching that resists a holy life. Forget that teaching. That we can just do whatever. And, 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 and I know I'm going to go off. Pastor Ben, calm down. 
as a pastor, I can tell you what's uncomfortable. See, if I just preach about sin and I don't bring up anything specific, everybody will shake their head. Nobody will have a problem. But it's when you start bringing up specific things, that's when people start having an issue. I have no idea what that meant, but uh, we might want to hold that one back for now. Love you. Thank you. Um, But when you start talking specific, that's when you start having disagreements and problems. Now, the thing is, is that we want to work carefully because on one hand, we want to talk about like sexual sin, but we we want to in the context of Jesus' transformation. Right? It's very important. Far too many churches or pastors over the years have just railed against sin and railed against people so that they're never going to even talk about what their struggles are. But at the same time, I feel like the, that we've gone so far on the other side where we never talk about it and we never, we never specify it. So you have two sides of the spectrum. you got one where it's just these like railing on and everybody feels more shame but then you got the other side and I, and I want to bring this up because if we don't talk about specific stuff and have really good conversations about what isn't a holy life then how do we even know what we're talking about how are we ever going to get down to what we mean what did Jesus mean? You can cover it under an umbrella and, and not talk about it and here's the idea well the Holy Spirit will lead people to that well, if, if we're going to say that, why am I up here teaching? Why do we need anybody to say anything to us then? If it's the Holy Spirit's job completely and utterly, why do we do what we do? Why do we get together? Why do we stimulate and provoke one another onto love and good deeds? If the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to do it, you don't need other people to do it. Don't say anything to each other. No, friends, that's ridiculous. And that's part of the compromise. Part of the compromise is don't talk about anything that would offend anybody. Everything's going to offend us. Oh, my gosh. I can't see all your faces, so I don't know how this is being taken. That's fine. But my point is is that you're going to get offended. But let's make sure that it's, if we do get offended, that we bring it to the Lord. Like I pray all the time when I preach. Lord, if it's from you, let it stick. If it's from me, let it fall to the ground. I don't care. If it's from me, let it go. But I'm deeply concerned, not just for this generation, but every generation, Old and young, men and women, we struggle with all kinds of sin internally. How do I know? I meet with people, and I'm just not, I hate to say this, but I'm not surprised anymore. I'm not surprised anymore. I've watched my best friends go down roads. For years, they weren't honest with me, hiding their pornography in the closet, never telling anybody. That pornography becomes an adultery, and like I've always said, you don't fall off a cliff unless you walk up a hill. But let me just say to you, like, if you have compromise in your life, I'm not a pastor that will rail against you. I will help you. I will fight with you for your freedom. But we've got to call it what it is. We fight for freedom. But we cannot be that church that just allows for everything to happen and, hey, it's all going to work out. It is not working out. In our culture, it is not working out. In our young people, it is not working out. In our generation, it is not working out. People are full of all kinds of stuff. And it's related, it's connected, and we've got to connect the dots. And let's first start by looking in the mirror. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at your friend. Don't look at that other person. Let's not look at that other church. Let's look right into the mirror and pray the prayer of the psalmist, if there be any wicked way in me, if there be any, any wicked way in me, Lord, cleanse me from unrighteousness. I don't want it. And if you're here and you, that's not a prayer that's already in your heart, can I, can I encourage you that the Lord wants to bring that into your life today? That prayer where you put yourself in front of a holy God and you go, you created me, you made me, you love me, I trust you, and I'm not where you want me to be. Would you cleanse me? Would you give me that holy tremble where I don't want my sin anymore, where I actually hate my sin, would you, could you admit before the Lord today where there might be some sin in your life and, and you tell the Lord, like, I've lost my conviction for it? Friend, your heavenly Father will look at you and he'll smile and say, of course. Of course. I'll bring you back to first love. I'll give you conviction. And in that conviction, we feel the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is only beautiful when you know that you need it. My concern 
is that we're losing track of how much we really need the grace of God. But we can step on it. The Bible says that people trample on it. The cross of Christ, like it's nothing, like it wasn't as serious as it really is. So serious. It's so serious. And let's not be self-righteous and look at others. Let's look at ourselves. Amen? Let's say it together. There's no room for compromise. Next time you say that, say that to yourself. Say that to yourself. Let's say that to ourselves as we walk closely with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in this room, as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, as believers in him, we, we honor your word. We recognize that we can fall away, we can backslide, we can sin, we can do things that we shouldn't do, say things we shouldn't say. But Lord, we are committed to struggling against sin and fighting for righteousness in our lives, righteousness that shines bright that looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus. Lord, we know we're not perfect right now, but we follow the perfect one, and we have your perfect Holy Spirit living in us as we believed upon you. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins and you would cleanse us from unrighteousness. I pray, Lord, even as we receive communion today, we recognize that your death and your burial and your resurrection is sufficient. It is sufficient and it is effective and it is powerful. And so we pray today, knowing that you love us, knowing that you are holding us in your hands, we pray now, Lord, that you would evaluate our hearts. We pray now, Lord, for those that we love that have walked away, those that are not listening to you. We pray for them, Lord, that you would call them, invite them, touch their hearts today, call them back to a life that is found in you with joy and peace and true happiness that only you can give. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing, and we ask you, Lord, that you would strengthen us so that we would not allow any compromise. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.